Cave Journal, episode six. Uh, my name is Jacob Corey. I'm Matt Pavlik. And we're uh, joined today by a pair of guests, um, level two judges. Uh, yeah, I'm Kevin Long. I'm from the uh, Los Angeles area. Hey, I'm Michael Nixon from the uh, Vancouver area. This week, we're actually uh, missing a pair of our podcasts, uh, podcasters. Uh, we're missing Sam, our uh, esteemed editor, and Sean O'Brien, who's uh, still stuck in a board meeting discussing ways to take over. So this week we have a special treat. Um, my good friend uh, Kevin, uh, he's a judge, as well as uh, Michael Nixon. Uh, I believe he's friends with uh, Matt. And uh, they agreed to come on the show and uh, share some of their insights from being on the judging side of tournaments. So uh, let's dive right in. Kevin, Michael, do you guys want to share with us some of your uh, experiences judging eternal events versus modern standard or limited events and some of the uh the things that you notice maybe from the eternal crowd where you don't really see them in your fnm crowd yeah sure uh i think that one of the um the best things about judging eternal is that players tend to be way more prepared in general they they uh they tend to know what their cards do uh they tend to know what their opponent's cards do um and you don't get the same like sort of uh you know 10 year old to to 13 year old crowd uh playing legacy who don't really who don't really know what they're doing so well so i I think that's that's uh makes it easier in some regards although given the larger card pool and uh and more amount of decks and interactions and stuff like that it's it's more complicated but I actually, I actually prefer judging uh, eternal formats in general to non-eternal formats for uh, for reasons like that. Yeah, I I agree. I found uh, I found players are often more knowledgeable with their cards. Uh, they generally know what's going on. Although there's sometimes I have seen uh, maybe a little bit of I know this works. You know, everyone knows this works, but they're not necessarily able to break it down if they were to need to. I have seen that sometimes. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of uh of this works on Moto, but I don't really understand how it works. Uh rules interactions. And and that's another lesson is that magic online is not magic. But all the cards are the same, right? Uh sometimes. <laughs> most, I I find that most of the time that that uh magic online is is just trying to make do. They're they're, they're just like trying to make a semblance of real life. Um, so maybe you guys have an example of, of something that you could do in real life, uh, Magic, but that you couldn't necessarily do on Magic Online. Uh, well, for a while, um, eternally uh, important, there was a uh, a bug on Magic Online where if you had a Blood Moon out, your Dryad Arbor wasn't a creature anymore, <laughs> which is not the case. It is still a 1-1. Um, it just doesn't tap for green. Correct? Yeah, it, it can tap for red, but not for green. Interesting. I can imagine how, uh, let's say, a player that was preparing for Legacy Eternal, playing on Magic Online, thinking that was the norm, and then being very confused when his opponent was able to tap Dried Arbor, for instance, for red mana. Yeah. The other difference, I suppose, comes down to uh, you know an arbitrarily large combo where you're going to say, in real life, you can say, I do this 10,000 times. You agree, we agree, all right, it's done. Whereas on Modo, you're going to have to uh, click through the, the process, which does, you know, there's often formats where, you know, nope, that deck doesn't work on online, so kind of warps the metagame. So let's talk about uh, the Four Horsemen. I've heard a lot about this deck. Um, I don't quite understand what happened with the, some of the rulings in LA, Star City LA. 
maybe you guys want to talk about what went wrong there? Yeah, well, basically, there was a rules change recently to the slow play um, part of the uh, infraction penalty guide, or infraction procedure guide now, um, <clears throat> which was that if you cannot say, if you're, if you're intending to start a loop, uh, and you can't say the uh, exact iterations of the loop, then trying to go through the loop is considered slow play. Like, very, this is very stripped down. Um, so, for instance, if I'm uh, a four horseman player, I know that eventually uh, I can get the only card in my deck to be Emrakul, and then I can kill you. But I can't tell you how many iterations of tapping uh, and untapping Basalt Monolith that will actually take. So because of that reason, we, we, uh, that, that is now defined as slow play. Now, Kevin, I, I understand it's even a little more complicated than that because you're not allowed to use the, um, the iteration rule because you can't state a number. However, I believe you're allowed to actually go through the process until it becomes repetitive. Yes, yes. Um, so there's, there's a little bit more nuance than, than that. I mean, uh, it used to be when you're playing Four Horsemen, you can just say, you know, I'm going to kill you eventually, and your opponent's like, yeah, sure. Um, but you can, you can now uh, start to go through the process of, of uh, milling yourself with Mesmeric Orb um, and uh, start, to, start to shuffle up with, with Emrakul and, and eventually get there. But um, once you start to do things that becomes repetitive, as in um, milling Emrakul let's say, twice or maybe three times and, and uh, reshuffling your library, um, you, you will have to change the game state. You, you have to advance the game state at some point uh, in order for it to not be slow play. So then, to interject, how many times could you attempt to physically do the combo and mill before your opponent should or could call a judge and be like, okay, this is slow play? Uh, that, that's actually a tricky question because it's not it's not set in stone. It's uh it's basically up to judges' discretion. Um, there's no hard numbers. Um, there aren't any uh like even suggestions for hard numbers. Uh, so it's very much judge dependent. But I'd say in general, you could get two or three, maybe up to five times. Okay. That does make it hard, nonetheless, to, to recommend to anyone that they take Four Horsemen to a, a competitive uh, rules enforcement level tournament, though. Yeah, definitely. So maybe we can we talk about the different uh, levels of rules enforcement. Uh, what are they and what are the player expectations for each of those? Um, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty simple at this point. Um, there's regular, there's competitive, and then there's professional. Um, and they actually sound very much like what we would want from the players. Regular rules enforcement level is basically casual. Uh, it's, it's FNM, it's um, more about fun than about having a complete and correct game state at all times. Uh, whereas competitive, we want players to know the interactions, we want players to know the, the cards that they're bringing, um, and to be able to play their deck in a quick manner. Uh, and then professional, it's everything even more so. Cool. So let's say I, I have I built my uh, not four horsemen deck. Let's say I built only two horsemen, <laughs> uh, Rugdelver, for instance. Okay. And I hear about a legacy tournament around my area, and they're offering 
some card prize, maybe like a pair of uh, underground suits for first place. What would be the expectations of me as a player going into that tournament? What would I need to bring? How do I prepare um, for that tournament? Uh, when should I call a judge? Um, basically, to, to answer the last question first, uh, whenever you feel like there's anything wrong or a judge could help uh, the situation in terms of either clarity or... Um, rules knowledge or anything like that whenever you feel like you need a judge call a judge and if you think your opponent's cheating always call a judge that's just a general rule that uh, everyone should always adhere to um, but if you're coming into a tournament uh, and you're a generally new legacy player I would recommend uh, learning your deck first um, just be be able to know all your card interactions, know how you are trying to interact with your opponent, just such that the tournament can move a little quicker. Um, in terms of bringing things, uh, I would I would always bring a, a pad of paper and a pencil or pen and uh, some dice, but that's not actually necessary. You don't actually need to bring anything. Okay, what, Nixon, what is your take on on this? I think the main thing... Uh, I would throw out for competitive level events where I see uh, new, newer players getting in trouble is with deck lists. And uh, I, I think you guys have talked about in the past the, the rules changes to deck lists, but one of the things the new rules let us do is not necessarily give out as many deck list penalties. And so I see new players come and, oh, I need a deck list, uh, you know, five minutes into the tournament, oops. Or I'm going to scribble one down now. Uh, things like that and you know you can just avoid those altogether by doing them ahead of time or any kind of preparation there just don't be in a rush don't be in a worry and just uh just avoid those those problems yeah deck lists are actually the place where i think most players get the most amount of penalties um just because it's so easy to screw up i mean uh I've, the, the last tournament that I was judging, actually, I gave a game loss for a player who registered Inquisition instead of Inquisition of Kozilek. And Inquisition is, in fact, a card from the dark. And it's terrible, probably. I don't even know what it <laughs> does. But <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly certain that he didn't want to play Inquisition and instead wanted to play Inquisition of Kozilek. So now I have a question for Nixon and then Kevin you can add on after. What do you think is probably one of the most commonly asked questions or incorrectly known rulings or rules or set of interactions that legacy players or just any magic player should know at a competitive level event but they don't well i mean one interaction that i can think of is to do with what you're allowed what you're allowed to do to resolve uh, a game of magic and I, I think some legacy players uh play fairly casually at times and i think i've seen at legacy events more than others a tendency to get into the danger territory regarding, you know, let's uh, do something to resolve this match. You know, let's... You, you know what I'm getting at? We're not necessarily coin flips, but, um, you know, splitting and, and stuff that's going to get you into into danger territory. I think because players are often very just friendly about it. At a certain point, they're like, all right, you know, we're all happy. We're just going to, you know, split the money and go. And sometimes it can get into dangerous territory uh, more often than other players who just assume, oh... Just play it out, and what happens at the end happens. So I have seen that a little more often in Legacy. Yeah, there are some times which, uh, in which Legacy tournaments, um, the the people at them tend to be a little bit more talkative. They, they, they like to have fun. 
especially in Los Angeles, eternal the eternal community is very um, very strong and very uh, willing to to just go out and have a good time. So that leads uh, occasionally to people commenting on the game state and matches, uh, which can be outside assistance. And I think that is a very overlooked rule right now in players' minds. I can definitely say I've accidentally done that before, even to you, Nixon. I'm sorry. Where you just, you know, you comment on a game state because, you know, you're an observer and you're you're all friends, but you're like, oh, you missed your Dark Confidant trigger, uh, Lyle. And it's like, oh, oops. You know, and suddenly now everything has to stop and change and... Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, well, that's actually an interesting uh, point to bring up because, you know, it used to be the case where, hey, anything goes wrong, stop the game, call a judge. But with the new missed trigger rules, players are allowed to miss those. So to an outside observer, it appears as though they're breaking the rules when, in fact, they're forgetting their trigger. And so uh, in the past, where it might have been perfectly appropriate to say, hey, guys... Uh, just stop the game, something's going wrong, we're going to call a judge and, and get that fixed up. Now it's like, oh, you just reminded them of a trigger which the opponent would love them to keep on missing. So it definitely pushes us towards telling players, you know, uh, get a judge away from it and just, or double check with someone else who's watching maybe, just to make sure, you know, confirm your understanding before you necessarily uh, let them know about that. Let's say um, that you are watching a legacy match and you see something happen that you don't think is right. As a player in that tournament, for instance, what uh, what kind of steps should you take to, uh, let's say, fix the game? Let's say your friend is playing, and uh, you don't want them to, let's say, lose a game because their opponent is messing up a play. Um, what recourse do you have as a player to fix that game state? Well, the one thing to never, ever, ever do is to tell the players exactly what happened. <laughs> you, you just never never want to do that. Um, I would say the safest recourse is to simply call a judge or, or find a judge and bring him over, him or her over, uh, to, to, and explain what happened. Uh, if it's uh, a mistake that you actually notice that would be like somebody playing their card wrong or something that um, affects... Uh, you know the the game state as a whole. Then you can stop the match and then call a judge over. And that's that's basically the the safest thing that you as a as an observer can do. So like uh, let's say your your friend is playing against the dredge deck and one of your friend's creature dies and the opponent forgets to exile the bridges. Um, that let's see. I don't know who controls the bridge triggers. I'd have to read it. This was relevant in a uh, modern, uh, modern draft, actually, modern Masters draft. It's uh, it's actually pretty rare to see Bridge from Below being in a draft deck, but uh, there was one degenerate who decided to put it in his dredge deck. It ended up almost working out too. Yeah, so it is. Um, if you have the bridge uh, from below in your yard, you do control the trigger, so you definitely have to say something. I would I would say at that point. Um, you should call a judge because it is uh, a detrimental trigger. Um, so we, at that point, we would be um, giving that player a warning for a missed trigger. That sounds pretty harsh. Um, you know what? Uh, let's say what would happen if uh, the player kept on making these mistakes, uh, game rule violations, and whatnot. Um, well, there are clear upgrade paths in the uh, infraction procedure guide. Um, normally, uh, they are warning, then another warning, then a game loss, and then a match loss. Uh, for the same infraction, 
uh, infractions being things generally like game rules violation or mistrigger or stuff like that. Um, so it, we, we tend to keep track of uh, repeated infractions of the same thing pretty pretty closely. It's all about the category uh, in which things happen. So, you know, if you're relatively new and you forget this one thing and then this other thing, you know, that's not the kind of reason we're tracking it for. We're looking for people who are, you know, getting their edges and repeating this sort of same thing over and over again. Um, you know, so it's definitely about the repeated uh, issues. Yeah. So you're telling me I could potentially be a new player and uh, I play a little fast and with my rules, knowledge, for instance. I, I don't know what I'm really doing. I'm playing a dredge deck. And uh, I could potentially make a bunch of different mistakes, but I'll get warnings for all of them, but they may be not enough to upgrade to a game loss. Yeah. Uh, we, we, depending on, on what mistakes you're making, um, that, that could be true. I would... But in general, I would I would try and be lenient with uh, a new player who's trying to uh, just you know get into the older formats and stuff like that, uh, as opposed to a player who has been playing for a very long time who is repeatedly missing the same sort of thing or doing the same sort of thing wrong. So then the question I have is, if you are calling a judge to ask for help on an interaction as a new player or something, uh, how far can the judge go in either advising you or explaining an interaction? Uh, f well, it's interesting because um, we don't want to help the players play magic. You know, we don't, we don't want to give strategic advice. Yeah, it's going to come down to uh, exactly that. So it can, it can actually be tricky at times because if you ask the wrong question as a player, you can get yourself in a position where the judge has no recourse but to give you an answer that is going to be unhelpful. So uh, if you find a judge who's sort of staring back at you kind of like, you know, quizzically, or, or hopefully they might even say something like, what's the rules issue you're trying to get at? You should, you should realize that you may be uh, asking the, the wrong sort of question. So for example, I've had this come up. Uh, can I name something with pithing needle? Well, the answer invariably has to be yes. It doesn't matter that naming it won't do anything in some cases. The judge has to stare back at you and be like, yes, and then sit there and watch as you, you know, waste your pithing needle. So that can be an issue. Uh, I'd say in general, if you ask a question and the judge says a one-word answer and then sits down next to you, you asked the wrong question. Yep. <laughs> I got a question, um, a, a card-specific question. Uh, Spellscape. Okay. How do you exactly play this card? Uh, well, that's a that's a very broad question. Uh, why don't why don't you narrow that down? Like, how do you play it in terms of what? In the terms okay. of playing correctly, or in terms of trying to lose well, guess, the most amount yeah, of life? I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to uh, get from you guys a couple of strategy questions here, but uh, you guys are pulling a judge card on me and saying, "I don't understand your question. Can you ask it in another way?" Um, so I think this actually came up for me in a legacy match. I was playing uh, Painterstone um, with Goblin Welders and Tezrite and a whole bunch of really interesting interactions that I thought were really clever but ended up not being that good. Um, but one of the cards that I kind of came up with to uh, answer Abrupticate was Spellscape. Now, and throughout the tournament I found various uses for it. Um, 
and the situation that really came up was Spellskite against a Terastodon. Maybe you can talk about why or why it doesn't work. Um, Michael, maybe you want to jump in? Sure. I mean, there's a couple things to point out with Spellskite. First of all, you can activate it as long as you have a legal target, a spell or ability. And so that can, again, be a situation where someone says, hey, can I target this with Spellskite? Sure can. Uh, if it's not a legal target, it's not going to change. Nothing is going to work out for you that way. Uh, the other thing that comes up that I think you're getting at is what do you do when something has multiple targets? That's not going to quite work out the way uh, the way that you want. You're going to have to activate it uh, multiple times uh, in order to grab all of the uh, the targets. Okay, so let's say I'm casting fireball with you know X is three and Y is four, which means we paid. Wait, so this is this is this is the beatdown version of fireball? Yes, that's right. Um, some versions of fireball actually. Were they printed with an X and a Y? Uh, Beatdown beat is the only one. Oh, that's excellent. Um, so suppose my opponent casts Fireball for X is 3 and Y is 4. And uh, the Y signifies how many targets, the X signifies damage. Can I, this is you know me as a player asking a judge, can I activate Spellskite to redirect to Spellskite? Yeah, <laughs> no problem. And, and then you would say yes and sit down and... I would kind of scratch my head thinking, okay, how do I do this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any hints? So I think the better question to ask the judges would be, because Fireball has multiple targets, would you need to activate Spellskite individually for these individual Ys, uh, the number of targets for Fireball? I think you might even be able to get away with asking, what do I have to do to make it so only Spellskite dies? What do you think, Kevin? Would you... You'd be happy yeah, with that. yeah, I would, I would say that. I would say that that's that's a very reasonable question. Uh, or, or even something like, um, if I activate Spellskite, will Fireball still target uh, other targets? If I have to, I, if I activate Spellskite once. Yeah, that's a lot of Phyrexian blue mana. Yeah, well, the the problem here is that the is that we're speculating about questions with uh with all the knowledge. <laughs> so uh, I think getting in in a player's head who doesn't know all these rules, you you end up getting things like uh, or questions like, can I use Spellskite to redirect Fireball to only hit Spellskite? In which the answer is absolutely yes, but you don't you can't only activate it once if it has more than one target. Matt, I know you were sharing with me last night a uh, an interaction with regeneration. Oh, yeah. So, I'll, I'll tell the story here, because obviously we didn't record last night. So, I'll set the scene for you. GP Providence, 2011. Mental Misstep Mania. Uh, I decided to run Thrun the Last Troll to combat the Stoneblade decks, and it was a good choice. So, I'm playing against, like, red-blue control with, like, standstill and, like, Nevenrule's disc and whatever. So I have thrown the last troll on board. He's pound and face, and this other guy is going to die 100%. He has a Neverrule's disc out and decides to activate, and he says, I'm activating Neverrule's disc. What are you doing? And I said, well, I will activate Thrun the, Thrun the last troll such that Thrun survives. He says, when are you doing it? And I repeated, so that he doesn't die whenever that has to be. So that wasn't specific enough for my opponent, also, I had no idea how regeneration worked because I hadn't played with regeneration since, like, you know, 6th or pre-6th. So, I wasn't really too... Like, I never actually had to regenerate it. That wasn't ever an issue. 
So I call the judge over, and I say, okay, well, so this is what's going on, this is the board state, you know, so when do I actually need to activate the run the last troll to, you know, to have it survive and win this game and whatever. And the judge just kind of looks at me and explains regeneration that it's a bubble effect, so you would need to do it prior to any sort of thing. So, of course, me being stone stupid about this, uh, basically said, so I just activated then, and there, and he just kindly, very calmly, repeats the exact same explanation. So, basically, after about three or four tries, where I'm trying to get information out of him, of like, is this how I do it? And he, he can't give me strategic advice, but he just kind of explains that it's a bubble effect. And uh, I, th I th personally, I thought it was really nice that this judge was... He knew what I was trying to do, and I was just being... I was just so stupid, but he was so calmly and nicely trying to explain it in the best and simplest way possible so that I would get it. And eventually I did, but I, it was really nice to have a judge there that was understanding that I had no idea what, what in the hell I was doing and was just trying to get it done. So I, I appreciated that very much. Yeah, that's that's a great example of um, a good judge who who isn't giving strategic advice, but is still, you know, doing his job. That being said, I want to throw in a point about uh, communication here. I, I think it's been expressed at every level of uh, sort of the judging community that we're not here to play word gotcha. And so if your opponent says, I'm popping my disc, and you're like, I'm going to regenerate so my guy doesn't die. No one is going to let the opponent, like, trick you into screwing up the stack somehow so your guy dies. As long as you're clear about your objective and how you're accomplishing it, I'm playing green and one to regenerate Thrun so he doesn't die. Like, that's clear. Your, your intent is clear. The mechanic you're using to do it is clear. There's no reason you should end up with a dead Thrun because your opponent manages you to, to get you to say uh, after you, you know, or something like that. Yeah, we, we don't want um, players to be able to trick other players into doing something that they don't want to do um, when you have a very, like, clear, express uh, notion of what you are doing and what you want to do. That reminds me, though, that uh, the one word I would recommend players forget Erase from their vocabulary is the word okay. Yeah. It, oh, God. Okay means a billion different things. Because uh, occasionally it's it's okay, that spell resolves, and other times it's okay, I'm thinking about it, and even more times it's okay, this thing dies, and just be expressly clear with what you're trying to do and, what, um, and where you are in a turn. I think uh, one of the habits that I kind of picked up uh, from playing on Magic Workstation that good yet awful program that I'm sure quite a few of you have tried to run is just using the phrase thinking, because there is a thinking button <laughs> in uh, on Workstation. So just, my opponents sometimes find it weird when, you know, I don't say, like, when there's a spell on the stack or something, there's no, like, some people say, like, hold on, I just literally just say thinking, thinking, and... But I, I think that's a good way to interrupt and just basically say, you know, hold on a second, it's not necessarily, okay, let's go through this. Let's wait. I might have responses. Yeah, and it's also very unambiguous. Yeah, what you don't want to say in that situation is, uh, okay, um, you know, because then you get the, your thrun's in the bin. <laughs> Judge, <Yeah. laughs> he said okay. Judge, he didn't let me finish my sentence. Right, and we don't like to be, you know, that's just miserable for all of us. Um. Maybe you guys can share some uh, weird uh, weird judge calls that you guys have gotten uh, 
let's say throughout the years uh, some of the more interesting ones perhaps hmm well let's see uh i think this was my this was my second judge call ever in a legacy event um i was i was still uh i, I was actually not even a judge at this point um this was a few years ago, but it, the the question was, um, I I am targeting my opponent's Lion's Eye Diamond with this Crozen Grip. Can he activate it? Hmm. Oh God. Yeah. Right. What, <laughs> what year is it? Um. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, th- this was this was a couple years ago, so the the answer was no, um, because Lion's Eye Diamond is a mana ability that you can only play at the time when you could play an instant or uh, that you could play an instant which is the most weird thing ever um but it was i think that was a very good introduction to like the craziness that can be legacy rules interactions sure i mean uh you can get good ones for example with that aforementioned thrun did you know you can force of will thrun (laughs) you sure can it's not gonna accomplish what you want you're gonna zero for two yourself but uh you know that's fine yeah that, that's got to be the best run with a hymn writer Absolutely. sitting on it. So, so let me set the scene for that story. So we're actually, Nixon and I are, are spectating about this, about a match where, you know, Thrun is, is a possibility. I was playing in that one, Matt. Oh, you were yes. playing? Oh, God. Okay. So, so Nixon is playing against a friend of ours, and we're talking about this very thing, about, oh, can you target an uncounterable with a counter spell? Like, how it actually works, and we're we're sitting there discussing this and and stroking our chins about how interesting this is, and it's it's great. And two seconds later, our friend casts uh, no, you cast Thrawn yep. Nixon, and and our friend goes Force of Will pitching some card, and we just sit there and stare at him for a few seconds and then laugh. Yeah, this was uh, this was casual, so you know the answer was this is not going to turn out well for you. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I think I actually had that call once, except for a, uh, a humility was on the field. Okay, oh sure. Which, which made the the player who had the force of will think that he was all all good and skippy and, and clear. But sadly, <laughs> that was not the case. Speaking of humility, <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah, this is like the uh, judges bane of existence, right? Eh, sometimes. Once you figure it out, though, it's it. Once you figure out that how humility works, then conspiracy becomes the judge's bane. For the uninitiated, what is conspiracy? Uh, conspiracy uh, is the number one card that creates um, creates dependencies, which is a a very complex rule. But basically, if um, in how uh, static effects, static abilities interact. Uh, is a rule section that is defined as layers, which is how humility, how we decide how humility works and how it interacts with other things. Um, conspiracy uh, is an enchantment that you choose a creature type, and creature cards that are everywhere are the chosen type. And it's the number one thing that creates dependencies, which are if a thing would be interacting on the same layer, um, and one instead of being on timestamps if they like come into play at the same time uh one thing can be dependent on another one card could be dependent on another for its 
uh, interaction and for its uh, what what it what it's doing basically. That probably didn't I'm make any sense. Not. It's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might need to open up a tome of uh, judges' knowledge to be able to understand what just happened. All I know about layers is, for some reason or another, painter servant under humility will still get to throw its paint everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Very frustrating, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, humility is not the end-all answer that you want it to be. No, no, it isn't. I think uh, another one of the classics that uh, they got got me. I was at a judging a side event at a Grand Prix, and you know it's the it's the classic Sylvan Library happened. Can't remember exactly what happened with it, but I had to. I was answering the question, and then I realized I didn't know what rel, what what rules enforcement level they had actually set the event at. Excuse me a minute. Let me go talk to the head judge. Oh, this is a regular REL event. All right, I'll just come up with a solution. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the the there are infinite um, Sylvan's Library questions uh, that happen in Legacy. The main ones being how does it interact with Dredge? <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Which is always you're you're always screwed. You always like have to pay the life. It's great. <laughs> well, well, no, not necessarily. Unless you only Dredge one card and put the other two back. Yeah. Yeah. What happens if you Dredge all three? Uh, you, you have to pay. You just have to suck it up. No, I don't think you get to... You don't have to... There's not four life on those other dredges. Because those are replacements, aren't they? Yeah, but then you... Um, then Sylvan Library looks at the cards drawn... Like, the, the fact that you drew cards and then you have to put some back and you can't put any more back, so you just have to pay eight life. I... I'm... Think I'm fairly I'm fairly uncertain about that because we For actually instance, we talked about this actually in a thread not too long ago on the source and multiple judges chimed in to say the opposite not to contradict you for the sake of contradicting you it's just this is kind of important yeah yeah for instance um my understanding of Sylvan library oh yeah no 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 never mind never mind if you haven't actually drawn cards then the the pay for life has no effect. I just had to reread Sylvan Library because it says instead of um yeah because there were no cards drawn so for each of those yeah I was going off an older text of Sylvan. Were you reading your Sylvan Library? How yeah, dare you? Too. Yeah, right. <laughs> Did it have a zero colon ability on there? Uh no no it was the Legends one. <laughs> so let's uh, let's point out why Sylvan Library is problematic. And the reason is, is because it refers to cards that have been drawn this turn. The game knows how to verify that. So if you don't do anything different than you would normally do, you just put them in your hand, the game can technically know that you have put the right two cards back, for example. But there's no external way to validate that. And since we can't have a judge sitting at every table with a Sylvan library, we have to use the opposite of what you want, which is if you can't prove that card was drawn this turn, you're considered to have paid the life to have drawn it. Yeah. So so does that mean that you should, if you're in a tournament and you're playing Sylvan Library, should you resolve a Sylvan Library trigger much like a ponder? Yes. Almost almost exactly like it. Uh, it gets more complicated if you've, if you've cast, say, um, Brainstorm, Brainstorm <laughs> in your upkeep or something like that. Um, what would happen if you miracled a reforged a soul and then put your Sylvan Library trigger on the stack. Um, so you've drawn a whole new hand, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Well, they've all been drawn this turn. That's neat. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an easy one. Yeah. Cool. So that, that's just all, all upside. Seems good. Note to self. Put Reforge the Soul into every deck. Uh, there was a Sylvan Library-like question that I actually got at um, GP Vegas, which was very interesting, which was a player cast Petals of Insight um, and and uh, looks at the top three cards of his library and shuffles them around and then draws two and then dredges the last one. But the interesting thing about Petals of Insight is that you only put them back in any order if you're putting them on the bottom of your library. You can't reorder them if you're putting them back on top and drawing them. Hmm. Interesting. So, now, speaking, speaking of Petals of Insight, though, now, I don't know if you guys remember the old, old... Omniscience. Quotes, Omniscience, Petals of Insight kill. Yeah. So now, does that still work? Because don't you have to set up a... Because you can't know the number of iterations that you're going to do. Ah. Uh, so <laughs> yes, you actually can. The I actually played that Omniscience deck when it was first... When Petals of Insight was the only, like, kill, basically. Um... And I, I did all the math. I, I did all the math to bubble sort, and I said that at most it will be this number of iterations. Uh, period. No matter if you, it, no matter how large, how many cards you have left in your library, as long as your deck is sixty cards, it will be this number of iterations to to sort your deck. And so I, I just showed them the math and was like, I'll do it this many times, no matter what. But could you not say that then with the four horsemen thing? Uh, no, because it's random. Because you oh. you are reshuffling due to Emrakul, and you don't know where the Emrakul is oh, going to end okay. up. Okay, I forgot about the yeah the shuffle. Yeah, so interesting. Could you also, for instance, going back to that example, um, could you, for instance, set up a scenario? Say, I'm going to look at the top three and put them down the bottom at least twenty times, and then continue until I find a burning wish. Is that a valid explanation of what you want to do, and essentially describe it quickly? Yes, yes, I would say that that's fine. Because you you have um you have a number of iterations of the loop that's twenty, and then you're just gonna do that, and you know, well you don't know the exact end of the iteration of the loop. Um, but there's let's say for instance an exit condition. Yeah, I don't know. I I think that's that's like towing the line uh, between uh, reasonable and unreasonable. I would allow it. Maybe maybe Nixon has a different uh, opinion. Nope. No different opinion. Yeah, so, you know, sure, so, with a caveat so of Nixon maybe. And, uh, Kevin Long are judging your events. Go right ahead. Yeah. Of course, that's going to depend on uh, the specific judge at the specific event. Yeah, so, which which also um, opens up a, another comment is that not all judges are the same, and the um, the rules are, or, or rather, not the com comp rules, but the the judging rules basically are still kind of open to interpretation somewhat um there is a lot of disagreement in the judge community about what to do about certain things and how to handle certain things um but we will generally strive to make uh to make all events the same <laughs> so eventually we'll figure it out and eventually it will be the same but for now it's going to be a little bit different and i'll just point out uh you know that's that's fairly minimal and fairly specific areas. Um, you know, we're, we're at a point in the judge program now where it's not like you're showing up to an event and hoping that they've heard of a comprehensive rule or something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about, like, there's certain philosophical agreements. Like, for example, when I mentioned, you know, should what should an outsider do or a spectator do when they see something go wrong in the tournament? 
you know, we could probably, judges could probably have a, a day-long conversation about exactly when they can stop the match versus not or something like that. But we're talking about, you know, small things like that, not, you know, how does X really big important thing work? Yeah, there will always be corner cases. Um, and that is just one of the reasons why magic is awesome. Um, but for all non-corner cases, I think judges are pretty much on the same page. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time of your day, guys. Uh, Kevin, thanks. And uh, Michael, thanks for sharing your uh, your time with us today, talking about uh, the life of a judge. Sounds like a the, book. Uh, yeah, life of pie. <laughs> uh, the glamour, the fame, the fortune. The infamy. I, I think that probably infamy is the most uh, applicable of any of those. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the things about judging is when you're doing it right, you're probably not getting it noticed as well as uh, when you're doing it wrong. I mean, I think players have got to a point, actually, I've seen in the last couple of years where they're like, wow, that actually was a well-run tournament. I'm happy. And they're starting to say things like, thank you. That's great. And you do see some of that. But I think you're going to hear like 10 times the comments, uh, 10 times quicker if something goes wrong. You know, that's so it's unfortunate. And that's why judges have this community where, we're, where we, we know what to look for when someone's doing well. And, you know, we can help encourage that kind of thing as well because it's not necessarily visible to players. Cool. Kevin, I know you have been pretty famous as a table judge for coverage matches. Yeah. Um, I know uh, a lot of times uh, players at home will put on that coverage and, you know, see something go egregiously wrong. What um, what uh, kind of sagely advice can you uh, share regarding your role as the table judge? Should we spam the chat on Twitch, <laughs> whatever, to tell you what's gone wrong? That that is one of the things uh, that is a, a very easy answer. Of absolutely not. Um, I think that <laughs> that uh, uh, Twitter and um, and like stream chat and stuff like that are are good tools for conversing, but at the same time, things go wrong in, in games of Magic. Like that, that is a not uncommon occurrence, uh, and there's not always going to be somebody there to fix it. So, villainizing somebody um, or uh, trying to fix the game state when you're just watching on stream is is oftentimes not not the best course of action. Um, but what I can say is that uh, in general, most of these uh, on camera like um, mistakes get fixed pretty quickly and and uh, fairly effectively as well. Um, for me, whenever I'm watching uh, this, uh, whenever I'm watching a match, a feature match, uh, I uh, actually have my own life pad uh, and my and I keep track of, of everything like that and. Um, I keep track of uh, all of the uh, all of the important game state stuff and and cards in hand and and stuff like that. Um, but that's just that's just me, and I've been doing the table judging for a long time. So whenever you see me on camera, you know that it can be uh, <laughs> pretty well in hand. Um, but I'd say that every other judge who's who gets on camera is is doing about the same job that I am. They're they're all top notch guys. It's probably worth mentioning what the. Uh philosophy behind a table judge is which is to say like it's changed like in the past there was a year when the table judge was supposed to make sure the game was played 100 percent accurately and 
you know, everything was perfect. But they've got to the point where they don't want to provide extra service to a match simply because it's a feature match. And so players are obviously going to be, it's a lot quicker to get a judge because you're sitting there and you're able to get up on speed on what the issue is um, because you've been watching. So you do have that slight, that well, huge advantage actually. But you're not supposed to be, you know, making sure the players don't make mistakes, for example, at this point in time, as far as I know. Is that right, Kevin? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, if there is uh, somebody who's going to make a mistake, and I'm 100% certain that they're going to make a mistake, I'm not going to stop them from making the mistake. They're still going to make it and have to um, deal with the consequences of it. I'm not going to give them play advice, which is basically what that would be, stopping them from making a mistake. Um, so, you know, philosophy changes from year to year, but um, I think we're in a very good spot right now. Cool. Well, thanks, guys, for uh, for sharing. Again, we appreciate uh, your time and stories for the judging side of Magic tournaments. Any last thoughts before we close out? No, I, I, I just want to say it was a pleasure being on the cast. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Thanks. Thanks very much, guys. We appreciate it. All right. So uh, let's get to uh, some listener feedback. Uh, I'm pretty shocked we have uh, at least two listeners. Um, so that's that's pretty good in my book. Beyond us. Yeah. Uh, e- even better. Yes. Uh, it was a little sad that uh, Sean wasn't able to uh, stick around and you know grill the judges on how he can get his opponents more game rule violations by playing Chalice of the Void and Suppression Field. But... Uh, Maybe our uh, listeners have some good feedback or uh, questions for us. So please feel free to send questions literally whenever. We have nothing else to do, please. So we'll go to our Facebook page first, and the first question that we got in, actually the second question, but it's the one I'm looking at. So basically the question addresses the diversity in the format right now. So there's not just Maverick, Rug, and Stoneblade as the top decks. There's a lot of decks that are really competitive and are able to take this, the top slots. And this person wants us to analyze why this is so and stuff. End quote. Oh, I love stuff. Stu- I, I could talk stuff. about stuff for hours. Stuff and things. Yes. Uh, so uh, I think the first part was... Repeat that again. I don't have a question. Basically just talking about diversity and why there are more than three decks that are doing well. Diversity. I think we can uh, pretty much sum that up um, in Legacy. And we could probably spend at least two hours talking about the diversity of Legacy. Um, Part of it is because there's such a wide open and rich pool of cards from which to build decks. There's a ton of interactions. I think we talked about four, at least five different decks um, in the previous section. And uh, I think there's at least 20 more um, that all have potential of making a top 16 at a Star City event. I agree. I mean, there's there's a lot of different strategies, and there's no there's no strategy that beats all other strategies. And I think because you have so many different people who have been playing, you know, differing amounts of time and have different likes and what have you, they're all playing different decks. So the reason why we have so much diversity is because we have so many different people. I mean, we have so many different people who have been playing the game for, you know, 20 years versus 3 years versus 5 years. You know, card availability is also a way of diversification. You know, and you'd have no dominant strategy that's better than all the rest at the moment. I mean, we're looking at, you know, like like this person has said, Maverick, Rug, and Stoneblade. Well, I mean, you know, there's kind of an issue of, like, the whole rock, paper, scissors thing. You might have th- a couple of strategies that are, you know, very good, very efficient at what they're trying to do, but they might be weak to another kind of deck that's maybe teetering on the outskirts of 
of of tournament dominance. Right, and I think uh, one key example, and I've done this kind of, kind of analysis on legacy metagames before. Uh, suppose we are just talking about Maverick, Rug, and Stoneblade. Well, even at their peak, those three decks combined didn't account for forty percent of the total legacy deck collection um, at a given tournament, for instance. You know, when we're talking about raw uh, the rug deck being dominant, we're saying it's about twenty percent. So one in five people are playing that, and that's a dominant deck. Uh, not like uh, standard, for instance, where when you see forty percent of any given tournament being played by a single deck. So just based on that, you're only going to see maybe like a minority of the room is going to be playing a majority of the decks. But then you still have that, let's say, 60% of room playing, you know, goblins, like graveyard strategy, dredge, hard combo, like like Antertas, um, maybe a couple show and tell decks. So there's a lot of different ways to answer small, small vulnerabilities in a metagame. For sure. You have so many people playing their pet deck who might just kind of tweak it over time. So say, I mean, it was never a good time to play Pox. But, you know, oh, I've got Abrupt Decay now. You know, I can add in some Sylvan Libraries. Oh, look, Pox is better than it was. And, oh, look, now I can take this to a tournament and maybe get some games. And as opposed to, say, going 0-7 in a tournament. Yeah. yeah. There's there's always new cards coming out that, that fill some niche role in some deck that somebody's playing somewhere, maybe, sometimes. Right. And I think if you take a look at the, at the opposite end, for instance, when we did have a period of low format diversi diversity um, towards the latter end of Survival of the Fittest, um, then we saw a format that was essentially overrun by a single deck. Um, and it wasn't... And that's not to say that, you know, 90% of the people in the room were playing the same deck. It's uh, really more of like 30% of the people were playing the same deck. And it just so happened it, it was one of the better decks in the room. And that's when you lose that diversity and everyone starts piling on to the same uh, survival of the fittest, for instance. That's when you start to notice that, hey, maybe you do want some diversity. You don't want to have every matchup be exactly the same. So I think also too, I mean, you also like diverse, also showing like not just that people are running 30% of the deck, like because you can still have a room where, you know, 30% of the people are playing this deck, but if you don't need any hate to beat it and people are just playing it for the sake of playing it, then it's fine. But I think where you get an oppression kind of issue is where you have 30% of the people playing it and anybody who's not playing that deck has to be playing, you know between, you know, 5 and 15 cards in their sideboard to actually beat this other deck. That's when you know you've got some sort of diversity problem. Right. And diversity is definitely something we want to look for um, in a particular tournament. Uh, in, even in a particular format. It's, uh, it's what kind of gets the brewer's intuition and innovation happening um, in the room, in, in, in the metagame, in, in your city, whatever. Uh, really just gets people thinking about it. It's like, oh, you know, last week I played against this Pox deck, and I want to try to beat it because, you know, Johnny really ticked me off. He destroyed my land and killed my creatures at the same time. So then you started to bring in your Sacred Grounds, and all of a sudden, oh, look, we've got somebody doing some critical thinking to start responding to a, a format-defining threat, or at least a metagame. A local metagame right. issue. It gets yeah, it gets a lot of uh, ideas flowing. It, it kind of turns over some some of the old guard and, and makes a better better experience for the player, uh, being able to kind of crack the metagame, so to speak. 
Okay, I think we've sufficiently kind of gone over that one, so thank you for that question. Uh, so the next one was, hey guys, I love, I would love a section talking about playing graveyard strategies lately with Deathrite Shaman in the format. Uh, talking about playing Tinfins, Lands, High Tide, and Dredge are often affected by graveyard hate, and Deathrite Shaman is is something I see quite often. So, so this one's a, this was a kind of a tough question, it seems. Um, especially uh, with decks listed. I mean, we have Ten Fins, which is a uh, combo reanimator deck. Lands, which is a control. Reset High Tide, I'm not quite sure um, how that fits in there. Maybe just all the instants and sorceries that uh, the deck can generate into the graveyard. Maybe he's worried about his life total, who knows. Um, and Dread, which is, you know, full-on graveyard. So the question is, how has the format kind of changed, or how how should this particular segment of the metagame change to deal with Death by Trauma, I think is basically what this person is trying to ask. So being, so so in your experience, Kobe, being a Tinfins player for a little while, in fact, one of the people who actually generated some interest with this deck, how do you respond to Death by Shaman in the format? Oh, man. I, I curse up a storm. I, you know, bust out a bottle, start drinking, uh, start writing nasty letters to R&D. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, it, Turn one Death Row Shaman is pretty uh, pretty good against uh, Tinfins. Um, my only real weapon of choice against, um, for instance, Turn One Death Row Shaman is to just win before it matters, or find a way to you know, overload uh, overload the Death Row Shaman activations. Fortunately, Tinfins does have the ability to both win on a first turn as well as overloaded, like essentially a critical mass. And I feel like uh, even a deck like Lands would be able to do that as well. Um, just being able to kind of cycle and, and keep uh, keep Loam active. Um, one of the tricks I know with the old Aggro Loam deck was uh, always keep a Cycler in your hand ready in case your Loam gets targeted. Yeah, I mean, I'm playing Aggro Loam right now, and I mean, um, it's, it's definitely, you have to look at the, the opponent... Like, I've played against Jund quite a bit, as well as a few other decks, and, and you have to see, like, you have to know that Deathrite Shaman is is definitely going to be something you're going to have to play around. So, you're a loam-based deck, so what do you do to deal with that? You either have to pack removal for Deathrite Shaman, specifically, or you have to be going faster or overload them. So, in in Loam, one of the strategies now has been a move towards Devastating Dreams. Why? Well, you Devastating Dreams away, you know, they're two-drop. Or all their one drops, or their X ones, or whatever. What I'm saying is, you sweep the board, you get rid of their death right shamans, make them not matter, then start loaming. Um, with reanimator or even dredge, I mean dredge most of the time is able to overload one death right shaman. I mean you're spitting your entire gri- you know your entire deck into your graveyard. There's so many targets. Which one do they pick? Right. Um, I mean, one bad dredge I can see hurting the dredge player, but if they get Two, two dredge cards off a single dredge, uh, they're back in the game, you know, as long as they can keep it up or they have some sort of ever fuel, uh, that should get them forward pretty fast. Um, I think you also you mentioned uh, overloading with removal, and I think that's been the strategy lately with uh, all the three color good stuff deck we've been seeing. Uh, for instance, Jund has access to cheap removal, um, even Esper kind of changing it up, switching back to Stoneblade uh, variations, and even some of the versions splashing the green for green and black for Deathrite Shaman. Mm-hmm. 
Also, too, I mean, having some sort of recurrable removal. For example, lands is uh, some lands players are switching to a build with punishing fires in it. Why? You know, you have a nice answer that is a repeatable kill spell against Deathrite Shaman. So, I mean, lands is pretty pretty hard on the Life from the Loam plan. I mean, they do have backup Crucibles. They do have some cycling lands, I believe. They're still playing them. Um, but that might not be enough. Getting rid of the problem for good with a Punishing Fires is definitely uh, something that you would want to look into as a Lions player. Right. Even the uh, the old mainstay uh, Curse Totem might just be good enough against uh, the Fire Shaman. Exactly. Uh, not, not the greatest, because they typically also pack up Rough Decay, but uh, it's a good stopgap measure. Pithy Needle, too, um, also achieves the same effect. I was actually going to add the same thing. Um, I've been playing a reanimator deck recently, and what I've moved towards is either being faster or overloading the graveyards such that Deathrite Shaman doesn't matter. So I've actually added Dark Rituals to the deck, so you can go turn one, Entomb, reanimate. Well, you're one step away from uh, playing Shallowbeard and just winning on the spot. Well, exactly. But I'm not quite there yet. Or the possibility is you could run a card like Buried Alive. Uh, the card's very narrow. I know I'm just doing some testing right now, but maybe it's good enough. Maybe putting three things in the graveyard and then running, say, Exhum, as opposed to a targeted piece of reanimation, might be something. Because recall that Exhum says choose, not target. Yeah, that's a very uh, interesting, like, very finite slice of that rules knowledge, um, knowing that you can essentially change up your target if, uh, if something goes wrong. Well, it's not even a target. You just choose the card when it resolves. Yeah, so if you were to, say, put in... If you were to bury alive three Gristlebrands, and your opponent has an active Deathrite Shaman, and you have Exhum, you know, next turn, so say they get rid of one of them, and they're ready for the other activation, you know, you've got two left, and they're ready for you when you cast Exhum, they're going to basically be, just be shit out of luck. So, yeah, if you guys do have any questions, please, please send them. All right. So, uh, again, uh, it's kind of a stunted week. Uh, we don't have Sam and Sean, but uh, thanks for stopping by and listening anyway. Uh, this is the Everyday Eternal Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Jacob Corey, along with Matt Pavlik. Hello. And uh, tune in next time. We don't know what's in store, but uh, we hope it's going to be a good topic.